Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have perfectly revealed yourself to us through him. Thank you that we are saved through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible, that you speak to us through it. We ask that as we hear a word read now um, and spoken on by Rowan, that you give us hearts to hear and understand and to obey um, all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great to see you here at EU's public meeting. I hand up to Wade here at Anglo Conference last week. Fantastic. Uh, I'm living with the consequences of a week at Anglo Conference if my voice is gone. Who else is struggling with a bit of sickness this week? Great to see you Let's see how well you remember some of Anglo Conference notes. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is a concept. Indeed, he is. He lives and he is Lord. The first fruits. Monday, Monday, very secure in your memory. Anything from Tuesday onwards. Well done, you remembered Monday from last week. Today we want to think a little bit about hope and the resurrection. If you remember your annual conference book, actually, some people actually had the annual conference book here, very cool. But you'll see in the end of the Hope of the Resurrection, a complete blank page. I had no idea what to talk about uh, when they asked me to on outlines of talk seven, so I just gave them a blank page and gave them a title. I thought, oh, there's lots about hope and the resurrection in the Bible, that's why I'll find something good to talk about. <laughs> Where we're going to go today is a, a passage in the New Testament that you're probably not terribly familiar with. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. And it does connect the ideas of hope and resurrection, and we're going to get there in a moment. So that's it. If you want to start opening up to that, that might be useful. Hebrews chapter 6. So I hope that will be enrich your understanding about Jesus, Christian hope, and resurrection, building on stuff from last week. And if you weren't there last week, it will stand just as we sort of engage in Hebrews chapter 6 as it is. But first of all, I want to ask you this question. Hand up if you are a cat person. Cat people are often very proud of being a cat person because they know they are in a despised minority. <laughs> if you're a cat person, do I mean, how about if you're a dog person? Yes, you're confident because you're in the majority, right? I, mean, <laughs> I have a question, whether you're a cat person or a dog person or you're a guinea pig person, I don't know what you are, but I have this question for you. Do you think cats and dogs, or other animals, do you think cats and dogs are capable of love? Look at the capable of love. I mean, I live with two cats. I don't think they love me. <laughs> it might be possible they love someone else, but they don't love me, I think. Dogs, I mean, surely dogs are capable of love. They're so affectionate. They, maybe they're capable of love. Do you think cats and dogs, though, are capable of faith? And what I mean by faith is, faith just means trust, right? Are they capable of trust? Yeah. People think, yeah, dogs are cats, they trust me. Yeah. My, even my cats trust me. They trust me to do whatever they tell me to do. <laughs> so we have one particular cat, Lucy, who we've had for quite a while, and she knows she's the boss. She comes in, stands at the sink in the morning, and goes, <laughs> until, you know, Lo and Judith will get to her a drink of water, and then, you know, everything's done. She trusts me, trusts me to do what she tells me to do. 
that might be the category of trust on the side of trust. But are they capable of hope? Talk to the person next to you. Do you think animals are capable of hope? Next door to us at home, next door to us at home, family, they have a dog. And the whole family is out during the day, they work, you know, mum and dad work, and the kids are out of school. Uh, and the dog is left at home outside all day, and uh, all day the dog whines. All day. The dog is clearly lonely. Do you think, though, that the dog is actually hoping, looking forward to the moment when the owners return? Is the dog actually ca- clearly the dog is experiencing something, experiencing sadness, loneliness? But is the dog actually capable of projecting forward, of being future conscious, to actually be able to go? There is a moment coming when all will be fixed. Hopefully, I'm not sure that animals are capable of hope, but I know that as human beings, we are constantly thinking about the future. We're all time, all future, you're, you're even thinking now, I really hope this new public meeting is not too boring. <laughs> I, like, you're thinking about what you're going to do on the weekend. You're thinking about hopefully you'll get through your degree. You're thinking about what sort of career you might have. You're thinking about will you find love without going on The Bachelor? <laughs> your future focus. Why is it that humans are so future conscious and other animals appear not to be? Is it just a product of evolution? If we waited enough billion years, would my cat Lucy develop the ability to think about the future? Now, I don't have a clear answer for you, but I do have a, I do have a speculation. I wonder if the reason that human beings are so future conscious is because the one true living God, the God who really is, who's, who has revealed himself through the person of the Lord Jesus, the one true living God has revealed himself as a promise-making God. And the nature of promises is that it's all about what's coming in the future. God is a promise-making God, and he's created us as his image bearers capable of having that future consciousness so that we can actually listen to his promises and learn to trust in them. He's created us to fit with his own character as the promised people of God. Just a moment of speculation. But the fact that we are so future conscious is inescapable. And the New Testament is very clear. As Christians, our future, our hope, is entirely tied up with the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1, an easy verse to remember, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1, Paul says, Christ Jesus, our hope. The Christian hope is the person of Jesus. It is all tied up with him. Who he is, what he has done, what he will do. Jesus Christ is our hope. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit. So if you've got your Bible there, let's open it to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to jump in at verse 13, 13 to 18 of Hebrews chapter 6. Now the thing about the book of Hebrews is it's written as one long sort of piece and 
The author of Hebrews, we're not sure precisely who wrote it, but the author of the book of Hebrews moves around a little bit, revisiting some important topics. We're jumping into a long section, and so in order to sort of to get some of the meat and goodness out of it, I need to jump around a little bit in the book of Hebrews. But we're going to start here in Hebrews 6, and we'll finish back here in Hebrews 6, and try to give you a richer picture of what the writer is talking when he talks about Jesus, hope, and resurrection. So let's jump in at Hebrews 6, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, but the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order. It's a fairly dense passage. We're going to just explore it and try to tease it apart to understand what God is saying to us here. I have four headings for us. First heading today is assurance of our hope. Assurance of our hope. The second heading will be location of our hope. Location of our hope. Assurance of our hope, location of our hope. Third heading will be content of our hope. And we're just going to do that very briefly because we really spent a lot of time talking about that in the comments last week. So content of our hope, that'll be very brief. And then fourthly, living our sure hope. Living our sure hope. They're the four things we're going to talk about. Okay, so let's start with assurance of our hope. The assurance of our hope, according to this passage, is the trustworthiness of God who makes the promise. The assurance of our hope is the trust. There's a whole whole row free down here. There's a whole row free. <laughs> you can lie, lie down if you like. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> the assurance of our hope is in the trustworthiness of God who makes the promise. Let me show you that to you here in the passage. Notice he starts by talking about Abraham, verses 13 to 15. He talks about the time when Abraham made a promise, God made a promise to Abraham. You can see what the promise was there. He quotes it in verse 14 from Genesis 22. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So God could have just said, because God is trustworthy, he could have just said, hey Abraham, I'm going to give you many descendants. Right, that's a promise. God is trustworthy, he gives his promise. That would have been adequate. That's not what God did. The writer of the Hebrews points out no, what God did was he said surely I will bless you and give you many descendants. He adds an oath on top of the promise. And that's what he means when he then says by this God did by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Because God is trustworthy if he makes a promise it stands. If he makes an oath that stands too. But he added the oath on top of the promise. Why? Well, the answer is there. 
verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. God wanted Abraham to be in absolutely no doubt that he's going to keep his promise. So he added the oath on top of the promise. I can't lie on either of those things. I'm going to keep my promise. You can be rock solid certain, Abraham, that I will give you many descendants. Because God is making a promise Abraham can be sure. Now, why did God do this? Look carefully, look carefully at the second half of verse 18. I'll read from the beginning of the verse. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have pleaded to take hold of the hope offered to us, may be greatly encouraged. The reason God said to Abraham, I will surely... The reason he added that oath on top of the promise wasn't just for Abraham. It was for you. He did it for you so that you can be more sure that God will keep his promise. So that you can see the way he was faithful to Abraham in the promise and so that you can be more sure that yes, what he has promised to you is certain, it is secure. God will keep all of his promises to you. When you trust in the one true living God who promises you, it's not a gamble. It's not like going to the casino and saying, well, I put it all on red. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll come out. Maybe that'll be... No. When you trust God, it is rock solid certain. It's not even just moderately likely that God will give his promises. It's certain. No doubt. Completely secure. Isn't that great? God made these promises to you that are not, he's not going to change the unchanging nature of the purpose. He's not going to change his mind. He's dead at He's going to do it. All your hope in his promises is as solid as you can get. In fact, have a look at the way he describes it. In verse 19, he says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I don't know if you've ever been on a big boat. If you go on a boat, the big boats have big anchors, right? And what's the point of having the anchor? The point of having the anchor is so that the boat will be secure. It won't get too blown around in the storm. Now the thing is, if you lower the anchor and there is a bit of a storm, your boat's still going to move around a bit. It's still going to go up and down. You still might get blown around a little bit, but because of the anchor, you are secure. You will not actually move away from that point, even as you sort of get blown around a little bit. Does that make sense? You got the image? What is he saying here? He's saying that your anchor, your anchor in the midst, in the midst of the craziness and the mess and the pain of life, your anchor in, the, in God's promises to you is firm and secure. No matter how much you move around, there is no doubt about God's promises to you. That is a firm anchor for your soul. So when the dark clouds of mental illness gather, you have a firm anchor. God's promises to you. They are firm and secure. You will not be moved. When the driving rain of pain, of stress and pressure come on you from whatever 
source. You have our anchor for your soul, firm and secure in the promises of God. When the stormy night of physical pain comes upon you, when the thunderclap of a devastating loss or grief strikes, in the lightning strike of sudden changes of plan, unexpected, through the rolling seas of relationships, up and down. No matter what comes at you, you have an anchor for your soul, firm and secure, the hope that God has given to you in his promises. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that wonderful? No matter how much you're blown around, his promises will keep you secure. Now where is this anchor grounded? Have a look with me. Still in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The author is switching images here, going from a boat and an anchor to the Old Testament tabernacle. Now let me just fill you in there. When the one true living God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, he brought them to Mount Sinai, met with them at Mount Sinai, gave them instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent. Uh, it was sort of like a mobile Mount Sinai. It was where God was going to come and dwell amongst his people in this tabernacle construction. And it had several sort of components to it. The innermost sanctuary of the tabernacle separated by a curtain from the rest of it was where they placed the Ark of the Covenant which had the Ten Commandments in it and that's where God symbolically dwelt amongst his people enthroned above the cherubim on top of the Ark that's where God symbolically dwelt amongst his people the inner sanctuary and so what is the author saying here well here he's saying our hope has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Is he talking about the Old Testament tabernacle? No, he's not, actually. He's talking about, not the earthly tabernacle, he's talking about the heavenly tabernacle. So you need to jot down a few references here, you can chase that later. Chapter 8, verse 5, or chapter 9, verse 11, or chapter 9, verse 24. 8, 5, 9, 11, 9, 24. The author makes the point repeatedly that that earthly tabernacle is a photocopy of the real deal. The real deal is in heaven, he says, where God is. The real tabernacle, the real presence of God is in heaven. And Jesus didn't go into the old earthly tabernacle. Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle. That's where Jesus has gone. In that old earthly tabernacle, the only person who could ever go into the inner sanctuary was the high priest. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. And when the high priest was going to do so, he had to offer sacrifices. He could only go in on one particular day, the Day of Atonement. He would offer sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of all people, take that blood into the inner sanctuary and sprinkle in front of the presence of the Lord. He could only do it once a year. year. And what the writer of the Hebrews says is, that whole practice, that whole practice was just a shadow 
of the real deal. The real deal is what Jesus has done. That Jesus has gone into the actual presence of God in heaven, bearing not the blood of goat and bulls, but taking his own blood from there, there at the cross. And he doesn't go in just once a year, and when that high priest dies, you have to get another one who goes in. He goes in there, and he's there permanently, forever, in God's presence. Have a look with me in chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. You can see this, chapter 9, 24 to 26. Right, it says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is where Jesus has gone. He's gone into the presence of God, bearing the blood of his own sacrifice, there forever in the presence of God as our high priest. So what's he saying? He's saying our hope is grounded in Jesus' eternal ministry as our high priest. Our hope is grounded in Jesus' eternal ministry as our high priest. You know, and Andrew Cox will keep saying Jesus is not a concept, Jesus is alive, he lives and he is Lord. The writer to the Hebrews wants to make a different point from the fact that Jesus lives. He says, Jesus lives, he lives as your high priest. That's the particular point the writer of Hebrews wants to make out of the fact of Jesus' resurrection, that he lives. Time and time again, he writes here, Jesus is alive, and that means he lives as your high priest to intercede for you. You can see it there in chapter 6, verse 20. He's a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Or chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Jesus has become a high priest, a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is a high priest because he's being raised and lives forever. Or chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, which we just read, he offered the sacrifice once for all, and now he always lives to intercede for us. What does that mean? In the book of Hebrews, you are saved by Jesus' death for you and by Jesus' life for you. Like we saw at annual conference, death and resurrection of Jesus, two sides of the one salvation. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus lives in the presence of God, bearing, carrying his own blood where he can make sacrifice for your sins. What that means is every single time you get it wrong, Every single time you deviate from Jesus' way, every time you sin, I mean, and we all do it, right? Every single time you can come back to Jesus because he lives in the presence of God bearing his own blood to intercede for you. You don't have to wait till next year. 
sometime when some high priest would go into the earthly temple. You've got a living high priest who is there in the presence of God permanently interceding for you on the basis of his own death. So the writer to the Hebrews, if you, if you came to him and said, oh, I'm really feeling weighed down by my sin, and I, like, I don't know, how do I, how do I deal with my sin? I just feel, feel so guilty, feel so bad. He would just say, Jesus lives. He lives in the presence of his Father, bearing his own, bearing his own blood there for your sacrifice. Like, what are you worried about? You can find all the grace you need if you come to him. And that's exactly what he says time and time again throughout the letter. You can come to him every time. Because he always lives to intercede for you on the basis of his death for you. This then is the location of our hope. The location of our hope is with Jesus in the presence of God, behind the curtain, in the presence of God. What then is the content of our hope? Well, I said I'd be very brief with this. Through the, through the book of Hebrews, how is the content of our hope? What are the actual promises that we're looking forward to God fulfilling? What actually are they? He describes them in many different ways. I'll just throw out some of them to you. What does Jesus secure? He secures freedom from death. That's chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 2, 14 and 15. He secures freedom from death. What else does he secure? He secures salvation. That was here in chapter 6. He secures Entry into eternal rest. That's chapter 4, verse 1. What does he secure? He secures a kingdom. We are receiving a kingdom. Chapter 12, verse 28. We are going to be part of God's city. Chapter 13, verse 14. This is how, this is what God has promised. This is the content of our hope that we will be freed from death, enter into eternal rest, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we'll be part of God's city. Those promises of God for those things, they are the deep certainties of your life if you're a follower of Jesus. I don't know what you consider certain about your life. I'll always have red hair. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe you think, I'll always be smarter than 90% of the people in the room. Maybe you think that. Maybe, no, I don't know what, I will always live in Sydney. I, will, I don't know what you think the deep certainties of your life are. They may be positive, they may be negative, what you're convinced of. But let me tell you, if you're following Jesus, let me tell you what the deep certainties of your life are. They're all the promises of God to you. They're the hope that he has given you of salvation. Final salvation, entering into eternal rest. Being receiving a kingdom, being part of his city, being saved finally—that's what he is called. They are the deep, the deepest certainties of your life because they're they're premised not on you. It's because they're actually about God and His trustworthiness and what He promised you because you follow Jesus. That changes. Well, that changes nothing and everything. It changes nothing because I can have all those promises and still my life can be pretty crappy. I can have all those promises and still I have to live in a dysfunctional household. I can have those promises and still be weighed down by pain, by suffering, by anxiety, by, by grief. It changes nothing. But it changes everything. 
Because how I experience those things, the perspective I now have on those things is thoroughly different because of God's promises. They are the deepest certainties of my life. (coughs) They are thoroughly assured because God is trustworthy and he will keep his promises. That changes how I experience all those things, actually. That's the content of our hope. Finally, living in this sure hope. See, if you have certain knowledge of the future, that changes how you should live in the present. Think about that. If you knew the future, would that change how you live in the present? So, for example, you know when you're driving and there's the uh, speed camera signs, and if you work out, I don't know if you've worked this out, that they come in three. I won't ask you to acknowledge if you've never worked that out before, but you just watch. They always, in New South Wales, they always come in through. The first one always says, speed camera ahead. The second one always says something, and I can't even remember what it says. And the third one says, heavy fines and loss of license. And then the camera. Yeah. If you've never worked that out, you think the camera's off for the first one, you're wrong. There's always three, and then the camera. I'm sure you always find speed camera doesn't matter. That's what you're <laughs> So if you're coming across a sign, they're telling you about the future, right? That sign is telling you, suddenly, suddenly you, you're a time traveler, you know the future, right? No, no, there's a speed camera ahead, I'm going to get a speed camera, and what do you do? You accelerate. No! <laughs> Knowledge of the future affects how you live in the present, doesn't it? Clearly. You turn up, new, new courses this week, right? New courses, you go to a new course this afternoon, tomorrow, whatever, you rock up, the lecturer says, I'm so glad you're here. Last year, no one came to my course. <laughs> but here, you come. And you know, I have deep trust in, your, in your, your love of being educated. I think the whole exam system is crazy. So I know you're just here just to learn. So what, since you're here, write your name down. Automatic distinction. <laughs> automatic distinction. Okay, just write down your name. Automatic distinction. And, and I'm sure you'll keep coming and we'll just keep learning together. <laughs> you spend the rest of the semester at the beach, right? Because your future is. You start, you start. I've got a distinction. You're out of there, right? It affects knowledge of the future. It affects how, if our hope because of Jesus is so secure, how does that shape how you live now? The writer of the Hebrews comes back to this thing a number of times, and he has three applications. Three ways it shapes how you live now that he keeps coming back to. Let me show you some of them. First of all, chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Sorry, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. We're looking here for how this hope shapes how you live now, right? See if you can identify it. Chapter 4, verses 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may, find, uh, may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What are the two things that he draws out of this your future that you have in Christ. Firstly, he says, therefore, hold firmly. 
First application, hold firmly to the faith that you profess. Grab onto those promises. Hold firmly to them. Trust Him. Hold firmly. No matter how big those storm waves get, no matter, no matter how much rubbish you have to endure in the years to come, I don't know what you face. Hold firmly. Because He's trustworthy. He will deliver. Secondly, He said there, approach confidently. <coughs> approach the throne of grace. Approach God confidently. You probably don't feel necessarily very confident in approaching God. You probably think, but I'm, I'm such a bit of a mess. You know, I don't have my life together and I'm a mess of all sorts of different feelings. I sin in all these different ways. I'm, you know, the writer of the Hebrews is not saying, no, 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 forget it. Let's just approach God confidently. You're, you're great. No, he's not saying approach confidently on the basis of you. Approach confidently because you have a high priest who's gone through the heavens, who's there in the presence of God, behind the curtain, who's interceding there on the basis of his own death for you. So you can have confidence to approach because you are there by faith with him. He intercedes for you. So whenever you need grace, whenever you need forgiveness, every time you can go. Hold firmly. Approach confidently in what Jesus has done for you. Don't hold back from approaching. Turn with me to another passage. You can see he's going to make the similar sorts of points. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Chapter 10, 19 to 25. He'll make the same sort of points, but in reverse order. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. There's the, there's the approach confidently, right? Approach probably drawn here in full assurance of faith. And then he goes on, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. There's the hold firmly point. Hold firmly to this hope that we profess, because he'll keep it. But then he adds a third one, a third implication. Verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What's he encouraging here? Well, I want to summarise it as love and encourage diligently. Love and encourage diligently. Because we have these promises, he's saying, make sure you keep encouraging each other. Spur each other on kick each other on towards love and good deeds and all the more as you see the final day approaching. Now you might think Jesus is coming back. Now tomorrow it's sooner than it is today. So tomorrow I can relax a little bit and maybe I can just relax a little bit more each day because it's getting a bit closer. The writer of the Hebrews says, no, it's the wrong way of thinking. Actually 
tomorrow's college, they say, but it's even more important to encourage people tomorrow. And even more important the next day. Why? Because he doesn't want you to let go of it. He doesn't want you to let go of those things and slip away. Encourage each other more and more as you see that great day approaching. And that brings us back finally to Hebrews 6. So turn back to Hebrews 6. Verses 9 to 13, you can see him saying the same things again. Particularly about this love and encourage diligently. Let me just read it. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is being promised. He wants us to love and encourage diligently as an expression of our love for God. To show faith and patience. When he says patience here, it's not like the patience I have with my cat where I'm just going, I'm being patient with you. That's not. The patience he here is patient perseverance. He wants us to be diligent in faith and patience because the opposite of patience in this context, the opposite of being patient is giving up. Giving up and not holding firmly anymore. Through faith and patient waiting, he will keep his promise, be diligent to the end. So hold firmly, approach confidently, love and encourage diligently. This passage in Hebrews 6, you may not have been terribly familiar with it, but there's a line in it about the anchor that has made it into a lot of Christian songs. Can you think of what song it is? I think if you're not, what song is it? It's anchor. It's anchor, is it? Cornerstone, or My Hope Is Built. There's, there's an old hymn, basically. A lot of these songs have picked up on an old hymn. And there's a verse in the hymn that goes like this, and I'll finish with these words. So the thing that expresses is the tone of what we've been reading here in God's Word. It goes like this. When long appears my toilsome race, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Our anchor is all there in Jesus. He is our hope. And he holds there in the presence of the living God forever. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that he is the great high priest. That his death and his blood pays for our sins and that his resurrection guarantees that he is in heaven now, um, that by his blood um, we are cleansed now and forever. That thank you that in life when it gets hard and it gets crazy and that um, there are so few certainties, we thank you that um, yeah, salvation is a certainty because your word is trustworthy and also because the Lord Jesus speaks on our behalf in your presence. We ask that you'll help us to remember this truth, that it wouldn't simply be 
mind knowledge, but that it might affect our actions, that knowing this certain future uh, make us live more and more for his glory each day. Praise in his name. Amen. Amen.